Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. It's important for us to uh, take a look and get an update on what's been going on on Capitol Hill. I want to bring in Nancy Agnanovich. Uh, she covers uh, politics and has been carefully watching the uh, candidates for uh President-elect Donald Trump's cabinet and how the uh, testimonies have been going. So, Nancy, uh, can you give us some of the highlights of what we've heard so far? Things are moving ahead. They're just not moving uh ahead as quickly as Republican leaders would like. Um, this morning, Senator Corker's predicted confirmation for Rex Tillerson, even though some Republicans are opposed to him because of his relationship with Vladimir Putin and his positions on some issues related to Russia. Jeff Sessions' nomination to be Attorney General is moving ahead. The Judiciary Committee appears to be scheduling a vote on Tuesday on that. Um, senators predict he will be confirmed. Um, Tom Price is having a hearing this morning at the Health, Education, Labor, Pensions Committee. That's I believe little... that for just let me break in. It's because I just want to mention that uh, Senator Bernie Sanders is currently uh, questioning uh, Tom Price. Is if you look at the uh, the sort of back and forth between Democrats and and uh, Republicans, do you see any big stumbles or any obstacles for any of the nominees? Well, the one that we really wondered about was Tillerson, but they appear, the Republican leaders appear to be skipping over the committee, or rather, if the committee doesn't approve him, they'll take it right to the floor, where Republican leaders predict they've got the votes to confirm him. Uh, we haven't heard a lot about um, the nominee for for labor. There's been some concern that his hearing has been postponed um, well into February. That's one person who I've heard off the record perhaps could drop out. But otherwise, they seem to be going forward just in uh, a slower way than maybe Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader, had wanted. Yeah. When you referred to Tillerson, that's, of course, Rex Tillerson, who is the uh, nominee for Secretary of State. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about Tom Price. He's Georgia Representative uh, Price. He is being grilled in part on his stock picks. He has been accused of buying stocks uh, in anticipation of certain legislation being passed and then profiting when those stocks rose. Have we learned anything further on that issue so far today? There's a lot of um, you know, concern about this because this violates the law that prevents members of Congress from engaging in insider trading. Um, in terms of today, I don't think we're hearing him, you know, say anything to indicate that, you know, acknowledging that this was in violation of the law. The issue there is that he introduced legislation very narrow in scope that was going to help an industry shortly after he allegedly bought a stock 
I mean, it all happened in a very short time frame, and Democrats are really pressing for more information on this. In addition to that, he has traded a lot of health care stocks while sitting on powerful committees like House Ways and Means and Budget that have jurisdiction over the health care industry. And so this issue is going to, you know, continue to be in the forefront for a while, not just at the health committee today, but next Tuesday when he goes before the finance committee. I also want to just touch on Betsy DeVos. Uh, she had her confirmation hearing, I believe, yesterday, right? She was uh, has last been, night. Last night, uh, she is uh, Donald Trump's nominee to be the next Secretary of Education, and uh, one of the big stories out of that is that she supports gun possession in schools. Um, I imagine that there was quite a bit said other than that, um, but can you give us just sort of some highlights? Well, that definitely would raise so many concerns among Democrats, maybe even Republicans. Um, that is something that we have heard the uh, the gun industry say would perhaps cut down on, you know, crimes in the schools, but it really hasn't gotten any traction. So this is really, you know, something perhaps that people weren't expecting. On top of that, she already was raising a lot of concern because she went before that committee last night for her hearing without having the required paperwork in order. And she has, Senator Schumer, the Democratic leader, said $5 billion in assets, and they haven't seen financial disclosure paperwork yet. And she's also allegedly violated campaign finance laws. So there are a lot of issues there that her, com- her nomination raises. Having said that, Nancy, you just quickly, procedural roadblocks to this, or the Republicans have got that sewed up? Well, procedurally... They're not getting to move them as quickly as they want. For example, Friday, after the inauguration, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, Senator McConnell wanted to start moving nominations, approving them on the floor. But unless he gets consent from Democrats, he can't um, bring them up for votes on Friday. The Senate rules don't allow for nominations to be approved the very fr- same day that they get sent officially Got it. to the Senate. Yeah. No, so we those got- Clearly, Those may not happen until next week. Thank you very much. Nancy Ognanovich, our senior reporter for Bloomberg BNA. Fox, it is my privilege to introduce a very special guest. We have Ira Milstein in our uh, studio with us, senior partner at Weil Gottschall, uh, and who is a professor, a law professor at the Ira Milstein, Milstein Center for Global Markets and Corporate Ownership at Columbia uh, Law School. Ira, you wrote a book talking about all of the problems in corporate America today and some of the issues that you see that need to be remedied. What do you think is the number one deficit on corporate boards today? Uh, the ability to go long term. Uh, that's their, their big problem. They're all sort of wedded to the capital market which is forcing them to go short-term. Well, can you give us some examples of, of specific corporate situations where, where, where they decided to go short-term, where they should have thought long-term? Well, yeah, I can give you a specific example of where somebody is going long-term at the moment, which at General Motors, they're now thinking about building new plants in the United States and hiring more people and so on. And <clears throat> whether there's going to be a little hit 
on the market because they're investing in the future rather than immediate? I don't know. I would hope that it'd be applauded, but you don't know. I want you to just take us a step back because people may not recognize the breadth and experience of your career. You have represented companies such as General Electric, General Motors. I mean, you have really been in just about... Is there any boardroom in America you have not been in? Facebook. Facebook. You ha- Well, now there's a chance because maybe we get you and Mark Zuckerberg connected. Right? Tell we'll him I'm you- available. Our, well, okay. Well, point- we'll send him a Facebook I'm, Well, I'm glad that you use that as an example because I'm wondering, would you provide an example of how a board shouldn't work to Mark Zuckerberg so he does not fall into that trap? Well, let's put them to one side. I'd rather not talk about an individual company, but in terms of how boards should not work, it's a problem when there's a family-owned or a dominant or a dominant personality that owns most of the stock. That's a problem, because uh, the issue of whether or not the st- he's going to respond to stockholder pressure, whether or not he's going to respond to other directors, uh, is a question. When you're the dominant guy and you really own most of the stock, there's very little that people can do to shake you up. And that's generally not terribly healthy. Well, with General Motors, I mean, has the push to invest in U.S. Uh, uh, manufacturing and, and new uh, R&D plans, has this come from the board? Yeah, I believe so. I think Mary Barra, who is a, a sensational CEO, has uh, ch- changed the whole tenor of the place, and she's very responsive. Are there any other examples of companies that are, do- that are doing it the right way with boards that are active in the correct way? Yeah, I think by uh, looking back at history, I think IBM did it the right way. I think AT&T did it the right way. I think uh, Computer Associates did it the right way. They all took a look at where they were and decided they couldn't stay where they were. They had to do something different. And uh, in all those cases, those companies took a hit. Um, when we talk about activist board members, I mean, they have to come from somewhere. Where are the best activist board members coming from or could they come from? Now that's a fantastic question. They have to come from they have to come from someplace and uh, my view is that boards themselves have to dig them up. In other words, the nominating and governance committee of of the board if it wants activist directors has to search for and activate them. But what types of people? I mean, is it going to be a Carl Icahn or is it going to be a, a professor somewhere? No, professors, are, you know, I don't believe in terribly much. I don't think we're terribly good at risk-taking. Uh, so I think you need people who have a vision. And the primary vision I think you need is somebody who knows right from wrong. That's my primary, that's my primary goal because in all these cases where there's a deficiency, something goes wrong. Take a look at uh, Volkswagen. Take a look at what's happening around us. And in all of those cases, you, you can ask, where was the board? What were they doing? Were they asleep? Were they paying no attention? I don't know. I wasn't there. I can only make a guess. So I, I think that wherever you have a natural disaster of some kind in a company, you must ask the question, why, why, where was the board? Why did it take somebody to come in and shake them up? Why did, why did they get into trouble? And where a company falls behind and gets off the cliff because they weren't modern, you would say, where were they? Why aren't they interested in growth and innovation? So I'm looking for people who will stand up to the management, who will ask the right questions, and who will look to do what's good for the whole corporation, 
not for some individual shareholder. Without naming names, can you get, provide us an anecdote of board policy or board relationships that you've seen that you have had trouble believing really exist? Or, yes. or you could name names. I can name names. Great. Oh, book. great. That's uh, why I ask. One of my favorites is Drexel. Uh, when Mike Milken was sent out to the West Coast all alone to do his trading by himself with nobody looking, what was the result? A jail sentence. And it was where was the board? Why weren't they looking? Why did they let him go? And why wasn't somebody paying attention to what he was doing? Is there a way for investors to gauge how effective the board is other than just looking at the incremental changes? I mean, is there a sort of a hallmark of a good board? The hallmark of a good board is performance uh, of the company. If the company is performing well, the chances are there's a good board in there someplace. Uh, although sometimes performing well is a handicap because you go to sleep. Uh, so, but generally, I mean, your your feeling is that if the company is doing well, the board is functioning. It's easy to find bad corporate governance because wherever you find a company that got into big trouble, fell off the cliff, didn't go modern, you have to ask yourself, where was the board? Those are areas where the board should have been involved. Can you give us 25 seconds on the succession planning that exists or doesn't exist for companies? It varies. I, 25 seconds, it exists. But in some places, <laughs> it doesn't exist in other than wordplay. Uh, it, it's, it's tough. And uh, everybody's got to be willing to play that game, including the CEO. Thank you very much for spending time with us. Ira Milstein is a senior partner at Wild Gottschall. He is also the author of the new book, The Activist Director, Lessons from the Boardroom and the Future of the Corporation. And I also just want to mention that he is the author of many other books called uh, such titles as The Recurrent Crisis in Corporate Governance and The Limits of Corporate Power. So certainly uh, someone with a lot of experience knowing what goes on in the corporate Boardroom. Well, especially somebody who has been in the boardrooms of Con Ed, Drexel, Burnham, Lambert, General Motors. This is somebody with a lot of experience. In other words, go out, read the book. And we're going to learn more about the oil business and oil prices. We have Julian Lee. He is the oil strategist for Bloomberg News, and he joins us from London. Julian, always a, a pleasure to talk with you. I've got to begin by getting your thoughts here about if a club makes a decision that they're going to do something like cut back on the production of oil, and then one of those club members decides to breach this agreement, either surreptitiously or overtly, uh, what does that mean, especially when you have a competitor breathing down your neck for the biggest market that you currently supply? I think it means that uh, we are in the world of normal OPEC politics, to be <laughs> perfectly honest. Um, I, you know, I, I think we have to put all this in perspective. You know, this is very early days of the agreement. Uh, the agreement came into effect on the 1st of January, so we're, we're literally just over two weeks. Give people uh, the, give, I just let that for you be a platform. We'll give people the yeah, details. No, I, I, absolutely. I mean, we had this agreement. OPEC agreed at the end of November that they would cut output collectively uh, by about 1.2 million barrels a day from the start of January. The agreement covered all members of OPEC with the exception of Nigeria and Libya, 
who are allowed to produce at will because both of those were uh, suffering unforeseen disruptions to their production. Uh, Iran was uh, given permission under the agreement to raise its output slightly from the level that it was at late last year. All other members were uh, and are still meant to cut back. Um, we're starting to get oil ministers from, from all of the member countries saying that they are implementing these cuts. Uh, we are doing some of our own monitoring of, of what's going on. We track uh, the tankers leaving the oil export terminals of, of various OPEC countries. And those are showing at the moment a slightly different picture. Uh, we're seeing no real cut yet in, in uh, uh, shipments out of Iraq, for instance. But, you know, it has to be said it's early days. And when you're tracking tankers, you can only really see uh, a cargo is loaded when the tanker leaves. Now, you know, we, we see a, a bunch of tankers leaving Iraq. If one of them is delayed by a day um, over half a month, that can make a difference of, of 120,000 barrels a day to the average export rate. So, you know, these figures are going to, to I think, show a lot of variation in the early part of, of any month. Um, we're, we're still going to need to wait a little longer to see what's really going on. Right. Um, but at the moment, we have, we have no very hard physical evidence that cuts are being made, but it could equally be argued that we have very little hard physical evidence that they're not either. Right. Well, one thing that we do have uh, some hard evidence about is that shale production in the U.S. has been uh, re-accelerating a bit. How does this pressure OPEC members? Well, I think this, this potentially causes quite significant problems for OPEC going forwards. We had the International Energy Agency, this is the statistical arm of the U.S. Department of Energy, uh, who came out with two publications last week. Uh, the first of them was their short-term energy outlook, which they publish every month. And uh, in that, they have revised up their U.S. production. Um, and principally, that's been an upward revision to shale production. Now, what for me was, was key uh, in this revision was that this was revision to historical data for the fourth quarter of 2016. And they increased that by around 100,000 barrels a day. Um, that tells me uh, that shale production was recovering even before OPEC did its deal. Uh, and not only you know, had OPEC not done its deal, but at that point, the expectation for oil prices in, in 2017 was round about $50 a barrel. So even with this expectation that prices wouldn't rise, right. shale producers were still able to boost production. We're now in a situation where prices have risen uh, a bit. Um, the expectation of analysts going forward is that they will rise further over the course of this year. Well, and what that suggests, sorry, what that suggests to me is that the, the EIA's forecast of 320,000 barrels a day of growth this year could be an underestimate. Julian Lee, thank you so much for joining us. Julian Lee, oil strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence in London, talking about U.S. shale production, how this could burst OPEC's bubble. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Pim Fox. This is Bloomberg. All right, I want to know if $56 billion can be wrong. Well, Netflix has uh, asked Jerry Seinfeld to bring his uh, comedians in cars, uh, 
Getting Coffee over to Netflix. Give it a park, I guess, in their uh, star parking lot. Here to tell us uh, a little bit more about this whole thing is uh, Paul Sweeney. He's our star. He's our director of North American Research and Media Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, do you like these kinds of stories, Paul, that, you know, you get to sort of <laughs> weave in by saying, you know, Jerry Seinfeld's going to now do his thing on Netflix and we're getting ready for the Netflix earnings, which will be out this afternoon. Right. It's uh, Well, one thing we've seen from Netflix is I always joke that Ted Sarandos, who's head of uh, content acquisition at uh, Netflix is the most popular person in Hollywood because he is buying everything. He has a huge checkbook. He's opened his checkbook and he's writing huge checks for content all over the place. The Jerry Seinfeld is just another example. Um, so they're going to spend north of $6 billion uh, on programming, which is, you compare that to CBS, which might spend three and a half to $4 billion. So um, just huge amounts on, on original content and uh, content they're buying from others. So um, they are really gearing up for the long term. How can investors look for results from this uh, open checkbook <laughs> with the earnings that come out later today? Well, it's something that the company has coined as the virtuous circle, which is investments in programming drive subscriber growth. Subscriber growth drives revenue and profits, which funds even more uh, investment capability into content. So the metric that investors have really focused on for this company uh, has really been net subscriber growth. Um, and now, since they're a global company, they break it down between domestic U.S. subscriber growth and inter international. And what we've seen, obviously, over the last several years and what's driven the stock over the last several years is the company's been very successful adding subscribers, first in the U.S. Uh, and now globally. So that is the number one metric for the company is subscriber growth because that funds uh, this, or it enables this virtuous circle. And if it goes wrong, it becomes a vicious circle because these programming uh, uh uh, obligations are long-term fixed obligations, and they have uh, obligations of about $14 billion for programming uh, going out over the next number of years. And in order to pay for those um, programming obligations, they have to continue to grow their subscribers and their revenue and their cash flow. Oh, paying for this. Oh, come right. on, Paul, Sweeney, please stop. You know, that's just so like last century. This sounds like they're taking a leaf out of the book of uh, Jeff Bezos at Amazon. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos in the sense that, uh, you know, profits be damned, it's all about growth, and uh, the Amazon investors are clearly okay with that. I think uh, Netflix investors uh, now uh, really want to see profit growth, and if you look at some of the consensus estimates out there, uh, the street is looking for profit to double this year uh, versus last year and double again in 2018, effectively. So what's what's happening at the company is their domestic U.S. business is actually very profitable, um, and a lot You're of They're handing their... over an annuity every month. Exactly. Exactly right. right. I mean, just as with Amazon and their Amazon Prime, you get certain privileges, but also you get the daily fare of whatever it is you want, maybe add-ons and yep. competition with cable companies or f uh, for content. Are right. they paying the right pr price for this content? I mean, right now there's so much competition. Yeah, it's uh, the cost of, of content, particularly original content, is in fact going up. Um, they are still the uh, biggest game in town. They have the biggest checkbook a relative to Amazon. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Amazon and uh, That's a lot Hulu. of bad television. That's a lot of television. And there's no ratings. You don't know how it's doing. <laughs> I like comedians and getting No, no, I, I didn't cars, mean that. But so, I just meant that, you know, you, you know, you're going to spend. You your bad television, but <laughs> no, I, I'll take that anytime. 
I was saying if you if you have six billion to spend, not all of it is going to be a hit, right? Which and, is why you do this, right? And and the interesting thing about the, for Netflix is they never have to they they never have a bad show because they have no ratings. And so Ted Sarandos, he's a, a a rock star because every show in theory is a hit because we have no ratings to know whether they do well or not. The the, the only metric that investors really have is our subscribers continuing to grow, and if they are. That presumably is because the programming is working. So all of Netflix shows are being thrown into one basket, and it is a basket that we will get more insight to into uh, later today when Netflix earnings come out. Paul Sweeney, thank you so much, as always, for joining us. Paul Sweeney, U.S. Director of Research and Senior Media Internet Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, and he joined us from our Bloomberg 1130 studio. You know, Pim, I got to say, I love that show. And if you looked at its sort go. of YouTube See? hits, I mean, it was going crazy. So, you know, maybe Netflix, maybe $6 billion, yeah. maybe it was worth it. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.